listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series on the book of Acts entitled, The Birth of the Church. Would you turn with me in your Bibles, though, to the book of Acts, chapter 7, and I want to begin our reading, slipping back a little bit into verse 8, on through to verse 16, where we deal with a topic, well, I've basically called it injustice, something that few of us know personally, right? Okay. Uh, Would you stand with me as we read this passage together? Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Stephen is presenting his uh, defense to the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, the senate, if you will, of the Jewish people. And he's in the midst of that, speaking first about Abraham. Now he moves on to a second person, notable in history, uh, that of Joseph. It reads in verse 8, though, it says, Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. And later Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. If you recall, Jacob's name was changed by God to Israel, from which the nation was named. Then he goes on, he says, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over all Egypt and all his palace. And then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing a great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. So when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. And after this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and the whole family, 75 in all. And then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we uh, look forward, Lord, to the way that your Holy Spirit will minister to each of our hearts, that I know that what your Spirit will do will far exceed anything that I am able to do. But we come here today with open hearts and open minds because we want to hear what your Word says and we want insight and understanding. We want wisdom on navigating our own life in this world. So, Father, we pray that you'd give that to us. You'd help us to understand how to attain it, how to retain it, and how to grow in its grace, Lord. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Whenever I read through passages in the Bible, I'm always looking for something that I never noticed before, something that may seem a little bit out of the ordinary or what my expectation might be. And that's why I find that uh, Stephen's reading or retelling of Israel's history at this point is somewhat fascinating because like anything there, you look at the things that they choose to emphasize as opposed to the things they choose to ignore. And ironically, we find that as he covers this, he basically skips over the lives of Isaac, whom we're actually studying about on Wednesday nights, and over the life of Jacob, and he goes right to Abraham's grandson, Joseph. Without question, and maybe this is one of the reasons why, Joseph is one of the most remarkable and dramatic characters that is recorded to us in the Old Testament. Few, if any, men of history have suffered such adversity and managed to survive. I mean, we read how he's sold by his jealous brothers into slavery. 
And then after that, he was sold to an Egyptian nobleman. And after that, the nobleman had him cast into prison because of a false accusation that was brought against him. And yet in the face of this kind of injustice, if you will, this unfairness in life, rather than becoming bitter and hard, as most often is the response people have to such unfair circumstances, he remains faithful and trusting in God. Now, Joseph didn't just survive, he managed to actually thrive, but I would guess not initially. I mean, for 13 hard years that lay before him, he went through this repeated injustice and disappointment, even humiliation. Hopelessness had to be something that haunted him as he looked at his prospects of ever being free from the circumstances. He had gone from the height of his father's favor to the lowest place that one could sink to in a society where the Egyptians had imprisoned him without any hope of ever coming out. So the question we, I ask myself is, why did Stephen overlook Jacob and focus instead on the life of Joseph? In fact, the very nation of Israel was named after Jacob, his second name given by God. It was never named after Joseph. And from this point on, Joseph becomes really, in many ways, a secondary footnote, not the central focus of the story. Well, part of the answer may simply be that Jacob, whose name literally means to usurp or supplant by deception. Some simply render it as being the trickster. But basically, he's an extremely interesting character, and that's why I'm looking forward on Wednesday nights, once we finish looking at Isaac, to really get into the life of Jacob, because I find him he is a, a psychological wonderland of dis dysfunctionality. I mean, I just really, quite honestly, I... I, I get immersed in seeing somebody who is as screwed up as I am. And so he's an interesting guy, but he's not a very admirable guy. He was a clever schemer who had real trouble in trusting God, which may be the reason why uh, Stephen didn't choose to focus on him, because in many ways, Joseph's bitter and envious brothers were more like Jacob than they were like anybody else, especially Abraham. Joseph stands in sharp contrast to those brothers. He is therefore one of the most commendable characters we read about in the Bible. And I often have to ask the question, how did a guy like Jacob produce a son like Joseph? You know, I mean, you, it doesn't make any sense. Sometimes you look at families and you see kids that come out of them and you say, how do they turn out so normal? when their parents are just plain nuts. You know, I mean, it's one of those kind of things and oftentimes the opposite is true as well. But Stephen's purpose was to illustrate a behavioral tendency that repeated itself in Israel's forefathers and was manifesting itself again in the Jewish leadership whom were confronting him at this time as well. I mean, Stephen points out in verse 51 at near the end of the chapter when he says of them, you are doing just as your fathers, just as your forefathers had done. In other words, this is a repeated pattern. It's almost like a, a cultural characteristic within the Jewish community where he says, you are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. Or as one lexicographer put it, he says, you have never been willing to yield to the Holy Spirit. Now, this indictment is something that's repeatedly stated by the prophets. In fact, I counted some 16 different times in the Old Testament where God simply said to Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. 
Now, what does that mean to be stiff-necked? Well, we could translate it as being haughty or stubborn or resistance. It's the idea of really, in a culture where they had to deal with mules and donkeys a lot, you realize if you've ever had to navigate one of those creatures, many times they just decide they're not going to cooperate and you can beat them silly and they won't move. It's kind of like that with God. He says, no matter how hard I discipline you, you're stiff-necked, you're fixed on doing what you want to do, you will not bend, you will not yield, you will not listen to my will. And so we find this interesting characteristic, which in many ways is evident within the Jewish culture as a whole, that there's a certain stubborn determination, which really is responsible in many ways for their amazing survival, but at the same time, it has always been, also been the cause of a lot of their difficulties. You know, in a way, it's like they're like you and me. We have strengths and we have weaknesses, and sometimes they're the same thing. That sometimes the very things that help us to be successful in some contexts are the ones that cause us the most grief and disappointment. And so as my pastor used to always say, blessed are the flexible for they shall not be broken. And I think that's that flexibility sometimes that we lack. And so I don't think they were that different than the rest of us. In fact, many times when I read their history, I see so much of myself, I just find myself apologizing and repenting to God through my whole reading. Isaiah, in fact, put it a little more graphically when he said of them in Isaiah 48, he says, you invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. In other words, they had become a very religious people. They talked the God talk. They had God words. They knew how to go through the system. They had learned the rituals and the disciplines of the temple and all the things that went with it. It's kind of like, you know, uh, somebody who's raised in the church and they have a Bible with their own name printed on it, but they've never read it. You know, they know when to stand up and to sit down and how to follow all the liturgy because every church, even our church, has its own liturgy. We like to say that we don't, but the reality, if you do anything the same way more than twice, you have a liturgy in place. And so the offering always comes at the same time, except this Sunday, we're taking it three more times. But, you know, the point is that he says, basically, you know it, and you, you talk about the God of Israel, but you don't do it in truth or in righteousness, not with an intent to follow, because he says, you are obstinate, your neck is an iron sinew, <laughs> that's what you call really stiff-necked, your forehead is bronze, in other words, nothing penetrates your brain, and then he finally says, you have been a rebel from birth. Now, Stephen's point is that these leaders were responding to Jesus and the gospel that the church was preaching the same way their forefathers had responded to Joseph so many centuries before. But there was a slight difference. Rather than becoming rank idolaters as they did in the days of Judah and, and Israel, they basically were, as, as Barclay put it so simply, imprisoned in the mazes of their own law. It's ironic how you can turn something from God into an idol that you worship. It, for example, for them, the, the law itself had become more important than what the law had to say. And, and essentially, that they revered the book more than they did the God that it spoke to. And I've seen that happen sometimes even with Christians. I remember early in my ministry, I was, uh, got an assignment to preach the gospel and share with a group of young ladies at a, at a girl's uh, uh, reformatory, which, you know, as a teenager, I thought, boy, this is a tough duty, but somebody's got to do it. So I accepted the charge. And I remember I opened my Bible, and I was reading a passage to these young ladies that were surrounding me in an, in an admiring maze. And 
And I closed the book and I dropped my Bible on the floor next to my chair and one of the girls recoiled and said, and I said, what's the matter? She says, you dropped the Bible on the floor. I said, yeah, what's the big deal? She says, well, that's, that's holy. I said, well, the book isn't holy. The, the, the God in it is holy, but not the book. And he says, oh, yeah? Then why is it written on that kind of paper? <laughs> and I had to explain to her that if we use regular bond paper, the Bible would be this thick. And this was a revelation to her. But it's interesting because here was a young lady who had no interest or regard in God and the kingdom of God, and yet, at the same time, she held this holy reverence for a book that she never read or never touched. And it's the same kind of idea that we can become that about buildings. You know, in certain traditions, the church itself, the building itself becomes a holy place. I remember as a young boy running in a Baptist church and making a bunch of noise, and this young lady turned to me and goes, shh. And I said, why? He said, because this is the holy place. This is God's house. I looked around, didn't see him anywhere. <laughs> just kept making noise, but the whole idea is we can begin to assign a kind of spiritual reverence to things that aren't really all that reverential and think that therefore we're pleasing God because we're following a set of made-up rules, maybe that were made up by somebody else and passed on to us. For them, basically, this had become a whole system, basically, that was designed ultimately to protect and to preserve and to promote. Oftentimes, when people are go to the peak of a system, they don't want anybody to threaten or challenge or change it because that is the source of their power and their authority. This is why it's so hard for people in places of power to be open to hearing that maybe they are doing something wrong because the admission that they're doing something wrong, they fear will undermine the very authority that they're exercising. And that was simply the situation here. Their power and position was wrapped up in these layers of legalities. They, had a, they were in a prison of rituals and rules and regulations. And they endeavored to solidify this so much that they built what they said they called a build a fence around the law itself, which in the Gospels is referred to as the traditions of the elders. In other words, these were points of view or interpretations of famous rabbis that had gone before them, and eventually it became called the oral law because to give it more authority, they said, these are the things that the 70 elders that Moses chose spoke but were never written down, but were passed down word to mouth, and that's why they have the same authority as the rest of the Bible. And so suddenly, they went from 613 laws in the Old Testament to where today they have about 300,000, with no exaggeration. And so it just kept on getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to the point as I was talking to one rabbinical student in, in Jerusalem one time and we quoted a passage of scripture and he said, well, I, I don't know if that's in the Bible or not. I've never read the Bible. And I said, what do you read? He says, well, I read the Talmud. And the Talmud is a commentary on the commentaries of the Bible. <laughs> so it's like, three times removed. And so you begin to realize that you can supplant the very truths of God and the simplicity of the Bible with all sorts of barnacles that kind of collect on the ship of your life or in the, on your theology. When you add to the fact as well that they were enraptured with the beauty and the grandeur of the temple, which by the way happened to be the largest, most expensive, most ornate building in the world, 
There was no other, Rome had nothing that can compare to the temple in Jerusalem. Alexandria had nothing that could compare to it. It was the most majestic building on the planet, on the face of it. The largest that had ever, ever been built in human history. The most expensive that had ever been built. I mean, it was a living wonder. When you walked by it, you were in awe. Even a day when you walk around the ruins of it, you're held in awe as you see the grandeur of the Temple Mount, even in its broken down state. And you begin to realize that this became a real source of national and culture, religious pride and identity. And to suggest, as Stephen was, that the temple was not the center of God's universe, it wasn't the center of his will, it certainly wasn't the center of his purpose, was basically in their minds tantamount to treason and became executable, just as it had become in the days of Jeremiah with the first temple. That temple also was beautiful and grand and majestic, and yet Jeremiah, as he speaks about the sins of Judah, he said, you've trusted in deceptive words, saying to yourself, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And he says, you don't understand, God is going to destroy this temple because it's become just another idol in your life. You don't go there to worship me, you go there to flatter yourself. See, they too believe that both their heavenly salvation and their earthly security were assured because of their trust in the temple. And when you add to this their fastidious uh, observance of copious religious rules, they really took issue with Stephen's approach when he begins to echo the words of Jesus who said prophetically that ultimately the temple itself would become irrelevant. When he told the Samaritan woman in, in John 4, he says, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now, we're accustomed to hearing those words, not realizing how outlandishly revolutionary they were when Jesus said them. And when his disciples began to repeat the same thing, that, yeah, the temple is a beautiful building, and the law has its wonderful rules and regulations and rites of morality, but the reality is that God is looking for something more. He's looking for something that is invisible in the eyes of man. He wants people who will worship him in spirit, and they will worship him in his truth. Those are the worshipers that God is looking for. And when he basically goes on, Jesus said that eventually this temple that they were so enamored with was going to be destroyed. And three times in Luke's gospel, in chapter 12, 19, and 21, he simply told them, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. One of the things you love to do when you go to Jerusalem is show people the stones that are no longer up where they were, used to be. <laughs> They're all tossed down. It was completely de decimated, literally as Jesus said. In fact, even the temple building itself was intentionally turned over by the Romans stone by stone because when they put the building on fire, the gold within it melted. You see the floor, the wall, the ceilings were all lined with sheets of gold. And when this huge fire broke out, hitting temperatures of about 2,500 degrees centigrade, Fahrenheit, Everything melted and the Romans came back and they rolled every stone over so they could scrape the gold off of each stone where it had melted into the stone and the cracks of the, of the stone. How amazing it was to find that the Colosseum in, in Rome, the famous Colosseum, was actually built with the same gold that they had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Well, to the Jews, this kind of thinking was, well, it was 
unthinkable and certainly unacceptable. Yet, as Stephen points out, long before there was a temple, long before there was ever a Mosaic law, the Spirit of God was moving in and through men like Abraham that we talked about last week, and now also through Joseph. That additionally, these men of faith were repeatedly opposed by worldly-minded individuals, those who could only see what was directly in front of them. They did not live by faith in God. They lived by faith in their own selves, in their own limited point of view. One of the hardest things for many of us to come to grips with is that our view of things is more often than not inaccurate. They're inaccurate. And we have all sorts of examples in our world of that. I mean, Ken and Audrey were just arguing over the color of a church, a car, right? Am I making, no, I'm, this is gospel. And their marriage is in danger right now because they can't agree on what color. But, you know, we all have different rods and cones in our eyes. We can look at the same thing and it comes to us as being different to different people. So that, you know, when I do projects around the house, I step back and admire what I'm doing, and my wife steps up and goes, uh, this doesn't match, and that doesn't line up, and did you use a saw or an ax? And, you know, well, of course I use an ax. It's quicker. <laughs> but we all do that. I mean, to, to presume that somehow you see things the way they really are is a kind of self-appointed arrogance that you don't deserve. You don't see anything very objectively. And it's that willingness to approach life with a certain agnostic view of your own point of view and realize that unless God shows me things clearly, I probably won't see them at all. Well, that's the problem is that the world is filled with people who have settled their own opinions. As someone once said, don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. Or as one candidate recently said, we believe in truth, not facts. How you separate those two, I don't know. But the point is that we, we live in a world where we have to acknowledge that sometimes I don't see things as they are. And particularly as a follower of Christ, I have to own the fact that my knowledge and my insight and my perspectives are fallible. Now on one hand, that's one of the reasons why we need other people to speak into our lives. We, we're, a fool takes his own counsel and nobody else's. But at the same time, ultimately, only God sees things as they actually and literally should be seen. It's this kind of spiritual contrast between Stephen and the men he was dealing with, or Joseph and his brothers, that basically led to the kind of conflict that he had. From his point, the point of view of Joseph's brother, he was destroying their life. He was destroying their dreams. In fact, Stephen just simply used the word jealousy. They were jealous of their brother. Now, jealousy is an interesting word. By definition, it means to envy the achievements or the advantages of someone else. To envy, in other words, to envy means I should have what they have. That should belong to me. And they've gained an advantage or they've achieved something that should have been for me and, and now I'm being overlooked or I'm being cut short and robbed it was this very jealousy and envy that motivated his brothers to betray him, just as it was with, it was with Jesus and the Sanhedrin. In fact, in Mark 15, 10, it tells us that Pilate knew when Jesus was delivered to him, he said Pilate knew that it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. 
In other words, if Jesus hadn't been able to do the miracles that he did, if Jesus hadn't drawn the crowds that he had drawn, if he hadn't been so powerful in speech and in life that crowds pressed in upon him from every side, if he had just been like you or me, you know, kind of shouting off our mouths and nobody's paying a whole lot of attention, then they would have said, eh, don't waste our time. But when they saw, as they said later on in John 11, the whole world is going after him, and if we let them do this, we'll lose everything. What it was is they were jealous of the crowds, jealous of the appeal that he was having with the people. I wonder how many times you and I ever analyze how much of what we do or the things that we desire or pursue is motivated by jealousy and envy. Uh, I, I would say that almost our entire economic system is based upon this idea that here's something that you need and somebody else has, and because you don't have it, you're not as fulfilled or happy as they are. I love these uh, commercials for uh, Sandals Resorts. I, I love them because I, in my mind, I, I like places with white beaches and, and beautiful tropical water. And I, I like all those things. I, I, I like, and I like the way they look. I think to myself, you know, if, if I went there, I would probably look like I was 25 too. <laughs> because even the old people in the commercial look like they're 25. But what is it doing? It's creating this image that you too can find love and romance and happiness and satisfaction. And we, next thing we know, we're, we're looking online to see if we can get a deal. Well, I'm just talking about myself, maybe not you, but the whole point is that everything that you look at, the car that you drive, isn't probably the car that you wanna drive because you can't afford the one that you think you need to make you that distinct person that you should be. If, or if it's not you're into cars, it's something else. It's something else. I remember my brother took me duck hunting with him one time and he said, here, you my old gun. It was a, a brown, Browning semi-automatic. It was a beautiful gun. I said, well, what are you gonna use? He says, oh, I have my own custom-made shotgun. And uh, you know, I thought to myself, well, that's not fair. If I accidentally shoot him, can I keep it? You know. <laughs> It's, it's like, this is so easy to envy. I found that it didn't shoot any better, but it looked cool amongst the guys when you're standing with it over your arm and they're going, wow, that's a really nice guy. You know, uh, and I need that in my life to feel good about myself. That's why James said, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight because you do not have. I find that's even true about marriage. Seriously, I find that a lot of the conflict in marriage is, is, is basically you're desiring something in your life and you're demanding that your spouse provide it for you. After all, why do you think I married you? I married you so you could live to make me happy. You know, I mean, I give my wife the privilege of cooking food for me and washing my clothes and cleaning my house. And I mean, you know, doing all of these things, I give her that opportunity. Uh, isn't that the thing that brings joy into her life? <laughs> Sometimes she suggests that maybe I should contribute a bit, but my goodness gracious, I'm a pastor. <laughs> I'm a man of God. <laughs> I'd like to think that she hangs on my every word, but she's going to hang me with my own words as soon as this service is over. And, 
But in all seriousness, jealousy and envy are among the most powerful drivers that push us. They were the thing that pushed Joseph's brothers. And I get it. Because from a human point of view, Joseph's brothers had good reason to resent him, if not simply to hate his guts. I mean, we read, for example, in chapter 37 of Genesis, Joseph, a young man of 17, first of all, 17 is just halfway between being a human being and not. You know, it's a friend of mine described, a psychologist friend of mine described one time, he said, teenage years are a period of temporary insanity. My question was, for the kid or for the parents? I don't know which one it is. But he's 17, and you know how when you're 17, you are so full of vim and vigor and confidence, and you, know, th- you, know, you just you feel like you're <clears throat> going to be that way forever. He says he was tending flocks with his brothers, and he brought their father a bad report about them. First thing off the bat, he's a snitch. He's a snitch, you know? I mean, you know, you just learn. If you have younger siblings, you always carry money with you so you can say, don't tell mom and dad. You know, it's, it's kind of the way it is. But here he is snitching on them. It goes on to say, Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons. Okay, now we're in trouble. Because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. And when his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Again, when we get into looking at the life of Jacob, we begin to see that he has so many mangled things in his personality that create all sorts of difficult problems. And they're good to look at because most of us carry many of the same. But what capped off their resentment was a couple of dreams that Joseph naively shared in which it was indicated to him by God in these dreams that one day he would rule over both them and their father. Now, it may be hard for us to see why this would be so offensive, but we're talking about what's called an honored-based culture. In other words, status and, and reputation are the supreme importance in your life. And so your place in the pecking order is, is a critically important one. And much of the Middle East has this kind of a cultural mindset that runs through it. It's one of the reasons why democracy doesn't really take a a deep hold in the Middle East because they they have this hierarchical view of things and what tribe you're from and where you are in the tribal ladder is more important than elections or anything else of that nature. And if you're in a position of hierarchy, you have a right to claim stuff that people lower down don't have a right to. And so when you live in a culture, which their culture was, and this guy's saying, well, I may be the youngest, but one day I'm going to be calling the shots around here. You see, customarily, honor and authority went to the older. The younger person had less status. The younger you were, the less status you had. By all appearances, Joseph was being preferred and promoted over them, and their father was letting it happen. And so they decided that they would fix the problem by getting rid of him. You know, unfortunately, what they saw as the problem was actually God's plan. 
But that's often the difficulty we have, isn't it? When we're facing a problem and we have trouble seeing that God's in it. Something goes wrong and we want to find who the culprit is. Uh, I think about our, our news media today, you know, that when something tragic happens, they immediately begin to look for the culprit. Who's responsible for this? And one of the things that makes it tough in identifying the responsible party is because everybody has an excuse. And, and, and Unfortunately, they have an excuse that's often valid. And when I look at a criminal behavior and the guy says, well, I'm the consequence of bad parenting or a broken family. Well, all those things are true and all those things are factors. But it's almost like we think that if we can find a, a person to blame and then we can beat the snot out of them, somehow not only will we feel better, but it will fix the problem and we can go on. We don't have to worry about that anymore. And the truth of the matter is there's not enough prisons and jails that can be built enough beds that can be filled to take away all of the problem of human nature. You see, most of us, most of the time, in, in the moments and seasons of adversity, look feverishly for a way to escape. We'll turn over just about every stone in order to come up with an answer. But the man or woman of faith looks for God, not the culprit. They look, at the, they look at the wrinkles in their life or even maybe the wrecks in their life and instead of trying to figure out a way to smooth it out and make it go away or fix it, they simply turn to God and say, God, what is it that you're wanting to say to me? When we approach God from that point of view, when we say, God, I need wisdom to understand how to move in response to this problem, God promises in James, he says, if you ask for wisdom, he will give it to you abundantly. God responded that way to Solomon when he, he came to him and said, God, I'm king of this nation. I'm a young man. I'm inexperienced. I don't know how to govern over such a large people and large people, a nation. He says, God, give me wisdom. And God said to him in response in 1 Kings 3, he says, because you have not asked for long life or for riches or the life of your enemies... In other words, think about those three things. God, give me long life. That means I'm healthy, wealthy, and strong. Give me riches. Help me to have everything I ever want and everything I lay my eye on. And in addition, give me vengeance upon those who do bad things to me. But God said, because you didn't ask for those things, but you've asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to see things through God's eyes. To understand the moments that we're in from God's perspective. You see, because Joseph was seeking the wisdom to walk uprightly before God in his circumstances, instead of simply seeking a way of escape, we read that, as Stephen put it, God was with him and rescued him from all of his troubles. God was with him. And I think the first thing that you and I have to come to conclude if we're going to deal with the injustices and the adversities that come into our life is we have to begin by saying, God is with me. He's with me, why? Because I'm with him. It's really that simple. I believe that nothing can touch my life except it pass through the will of God. And you see, many of us don't think like that. We, we have God segmented into a part of our life so that when good things happen, that's God. When bad things happen, that's got to be somebody else who's to blame. 
And we don't want to accept the fact that a lot of times God will let bad things happen to us. That sometimes God lets you get sick and ill. Sometimes God lets you go through financial difficulties or even loss. Sometimes you lose loved ones. And all those things have varying levels of devastation depending on what happens to be your situation at that moment. But nonetheless, if you see God in those things, then you will find that God will be with you. But if you refuse and say, God isn't in that, and that's this bad person's fault, and this circumstance is, well, then you're going down the road of bitterness, and you'll find that your life is going to be unhappy. You know, the greatest argument about, against bitterness is just what it does with people's lives when they give into it. That's, that's the worst part about it. You, you become cranky, irritable, bitter, revengeful, critical, crampy, crap, what's that, crampy, crampy, yeah. cranky, that's the word, K, not P, okay, you become cranky, because you have no interest or even effort to see God, are you in this, what are you doing in my life right now? Because he was willing to look for God, God gave him two of the greatest assets we can ever hope to receive in this life. Stephen writes, God gave Joseph wisdom. Greek word Sophia means to the ability to see things through God's eyes. And because you have that ability, you're able to make right choices. Not even necessarily choices that would make sense to someone else, but you're making the choice that you believe God wants you to make. They're the right choice, and you say, I'm, I've got to be obedient to God because this is what God wants. That's, where, that's what wisdom is. That's how it operates in our life. It's not, you're not wise because you sit on a mountaintop in a lotus position and you tell people the meaning of life as you see it from 10,000 feet up. I'm not interested in that point of view. What is the meaning of life when I'm 10 feet above sea level and sea level is at 11 feet? That's when I want to know how to live my life in those critical moments. God says, if you seek me in your moments, I will give you that wisdom, that ability to understand and to navigate the next step in your journey that will bring you to an expected end, a joyful end. And secondly, he says, he enabled him to gain goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The word goodwill there is actually the word charis, where we get our word grace. The grace, that undeserved, uncommon favor that produces right results in our life. That when we see something turn out right in our life, we know, we simply say, the grace of God was moving in my life. The results were good. And when we see things going badly, we step back and say, God, did I miss you on this one? Or is this just part of the longer process that's going on here? Because in the end, I'm secure in his gracious heart towards me. That God looks on me with favor. And this is the tough thing with Jacob, very selfishly, favored Joseph. And that favoring of Joseph showed up in the special treatment, the special position, the place where he would sit at the dinner table, the clothes that he wore, and all of these things that her brothers watched. And we see the injustice when one is favored over another. And so it's easy for us to project in our minds that God treats Christians or other people that way. But the truth of the matter is that 
God shows that same grace. It just comes in different ways, shapes, and forms. I was telling the guys this morning, I said, you know, I wish there was a fitness pill that I could take. I'm praying for that research. But one of the things I know that if I'm not willing to sweat and toil, that my muscles will atrophy at a pace of 1% a year. And at this point, you know, in a few years, I'll be down to zero. They'll roll me in here in a, in a, in a cart and pour me out on the floor. <laughs> I mean, it's just a simple reality. And, and I know that the only way I can stance that is to fight against the current. Again, my pastor used to always say that any dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live one to fight the current. And we don't like that. We don't like the idea that I have to really go against the current. I mean, I know I'm supposed to read my Bible, but shouldn't it be that I open it up and suddenly I hear angels going, oh, and I feel this rush of the Shekinah glory inside of me and go, hallelujah, Jesus, and I'm filled with power and faith and grace, right? Well, I'm reading the first nine chapters of Chronicles right now, so I think you understand if you've been there. Don't hear many angels. Hear a lot of crickets. But as my wife and I were talking about it yesterday, you also find some amazing gems of insight when you take the time to read every single name. I mean, who writes a book and starts the first nine chapters with people's names <laughs> from places that you don't know and you can't even pronounce them? But it's this wisdom and this grace that Joseph received from God. It wasn't something that was essentially in him. He received this from God, and that grace and that wisdom repeatedly pushed him to the top of the class so that when he is sold to the Egyptian nobleman Potiphar, we find it says in Genesis 39, Joseph found favor in the eyes of the Lord and, and became his attendant. Potiphar entrusted to his care everything he owned. He became the governor of his entire household. And then when he's betrayed by Potiphar's wife and cast into prison, it says in chapter 39, verse 20, while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. And the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Interesting, you know, to be cast into prison, um, never been there. I've never been in jail for that matter. But I can only imagine how depressing that is. I visited people in jail and was glad I was on this other glass. But how hard it is not to despair at a moment like that, especially if you've been put in there unjustly. You've been falsely accused, falsely convicted, falsely condemned, and, and you have no power. I, I often picture myself kind of losing my mind in those moments. And yet, Joseph realized that he was not alone in prison, that the Lord was with him. God was with him. And God gave him insight, and God blessed him that even within prison, he rose to the top of the class and essentially began to run the whole prison because he was such a faithful, disciplined man. Now, we might ask, and I think we overlook this sometimes, did Joseph ever get depressed? 
And to my, re- my feeling is, duh, of course, undoubtedly he got depressed and he probably went through deep seasons of despair that aren't told to us in the text, but it just has to be that way because none of us walks in constant victory and joy. You and I all have those experiences where something happens and it's like a gut punch and you're just kind of unable to move or think for a while because you're so overwhelmed by the unexpected the un- and sometimes the unprecedented. We all go through that. So there's no guilt or shame in being laid flat by something that hits you in life. Yet what we keep on seeing in Joseph is that he rises to the top of the fiery cauldrons of injustice. And I think the reason is because like David of old who uh, lived for a period of five to 10 years, dark moments when King Saul was using all of his energy to pursue him and wanted to persecute and kill him for something he hadn't done wrong. But David wrote in the 27th Psalm in the midst of that struggle, he says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. <clears throat> Again, I, I, can't, I can't truly say I know what that was like. To think that you're living in the most harsh environment on the planet, the Negev where David went to hide. I mean, it's like you go there, it's like the landscape of the moon. He's going there running and hiding and living in caves and in all sorts of adverse situations and being betrayed by some of his own family and friends, barely escaping time and time again. You do that year in and year out. That wears you out, that wears you down. But what I find in life is oftentimes God wants to wear us down so that he can build us up. It took Joseph 13 long years to move from bitter to better. It took him 13 years to conform into a man of grace instead of a man of grumbling and grouching and who really only fully understood what was going on when he came to the end of his journey. When he reveals himself to his brothers, he says to them in Genesis 45, he says, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now here's an interesting paradigm shift, isn't it? <laughs> First of all, you sold me into slavery with the hope that I would die as slaves often did within a few years after their enslavement. You sent me here to get rid of me that I would perish and be destroyed. But suddenly I don't see you as sending me. I see God in his interesting way as sending me ahead of you so that I would come to the place where I am today to save your lives. Now, I don't know if you can get your mind about how crazy this is. (laughs) 
I don't know if I've ever completely been in that space. I, I would like to think I'd get there someday. But to be looking at someone who has dedicated them to your destruction, their life purpose is to destroy you and they hate you with every fiber of their being and to look at them and say, you know what? Uh, I don't even see what you did anymore because what you did is what got me to where I am today. If I hadn't been sold and betrayed by you and hated by you, I never would have ended up being the governor of Egypt. Now, granted, when you're the governor of Egypt, it's easier to see that. <laughs> and maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you're still in those 13 years of disappointment and heartbreak and, and betrayal and injustice and unfairness and unkindness and whatever it is you're going through. And, and, and I get that because I've been there and I know that I will be there again at some point in time. But when you begin to say, you know, that I'm not the victim of circumstances, that God is sending me into something that is designed to change me. C.S. Lewis so wonderfully said as his wife Joy was dying of cancer and his vicar said to him, well, we're praying for her recovery. And Lewis just simply said, you know, God, prayer doesn't change God. It changes me. He says, God's will will be done. But I have a choice whether I will embrace his will or be angered and bitter about it. It's not the thing that Joseph was naive. Later on in chapter 50, after his father Jacob passes away and his brothers are concerned that he's going to get his vengeance now that dad isn't there, he says, you know, as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about many people, bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are this day. When I was going through a, a really painful time some years back, I, I came up with this little phrases that I, in my mind that I kept on repeating myself and simply went like this. That every, anything, everything that hurts me heals me. And everything that humbles me helps me. Everything that hurts me brings healing into my life. And I discovered that. The more I felt that pain of those experiences, the more I began to open myself to God and saying, God, this hurts so bad and it hurts so deeply that unless you touch this wound in my soul that I will never recover. And God healed it. And I look back on those things and saying, I'm thankful that God allowed me to experience that dark season because had it not come, the changes that God was wanting to work in me would never have taken place. The things that I found so humbling were the very things that helped me because God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And in that humility where you're saying, God, I, I'm nothing and I have nothing to offer and the world would be better off without me cluttering the airspace. And in that brokenness, you see God do things that you never thought possible. It's a truism to say that had he not broken me, or as Thomas said, if I had not been afflicted, I would have gone astray. 
And that's really what's at stake here because bitterness and resentment and anger and hatred and all those things, those are things that take you astray. They take you away from the heart of God, away from the purpose of God, away from the design of God for your life. But when we humble ourselves and say, God, show me what I need to learn from this. Or as Solomon put it in Ecclesiastes, in the day of adversity, consider. When things are adverse, just step back and say, God, what is it you're trying to say to me? C.S. Lewis put it so well. He says, you know, God uh, whispers to us through his word. He speaks to us through our prayers but he shouts at us in our pain. And sometimes we only hear God clearly <laughs> when we're in pain. Don't get me wrong. I don't like this system. I don't like it like that. I'm not some kind of masochistic, you know? I mean, if you want to beat me, then go ahead, just as long as you use wet noodles and not dry ones. But you and I might ask, well, how in the world did this relate to the Jewish leaders that Stephen is, is addressing here? And the answer is simply that these men, their hope was not in God, even though they used a lot of God words and did a lot of God works and walked around God's house and God's clothing and God's garments and God this and God that. But really, their present life and what they could gain from it was their God. They weren't looking for wisdom they were looking for a way to advance. And I'll be quite honest, many times I've had conversations with individuals who are frustrated because they're trying to advance. And when I've said to them, you know, you should be looking for God's wisdom in your moment, not looking for a way to prosper, they look at me like I, I'm as stupid as I appear. These men's faith was in their politics, it was in their position, in the power and self-promotion. They were not pursuing God. They were pursuing their own self-styled agenda. And when you or I do that, we miss God's agenda because we've got our own. So how do I avoid bitterness and despair in and, and that negative way? Well, again, the first thing I would simply say is look for God in all of your troubles. You know, God is not synonymous with your troubles, but God is in your troubles. God is in your troubles. I mean, it was such a revelation when my wife and I in our early marriage found out that we didn't like each other very much. And uh, we would we'd get angry and, you know, we loved each other. We just didn't like who we were. And we would fight and argue and go through all these kind of things. And it was really, I think the thing that saved our marriage more than anything else is we knew that God had put us together because we spent a lot of time fasting and prayer before we married. Is this the right one for me? And, and then I thought, did I miss your voice? Because, you know, she's not behaving like a well-trained puppy. And I discovered that I had some really twisted concepts about what it meant to be a husband and even worse as a father. He's like, God was confronting me. God may be confronting you. You look at the troubles that you're having. You know, it's like I remember trying to be really shrewd in financial dealings when we were young, and every time I tried to do something that would make me rich, it went really badly. 
And I remember stepping back saying, God, you know, you haven't called me to be a fiduciary. You called me to be a pastor, and I just need to teach your word, and I need to trust this to people who are gifted in that way. You learn from your failures, and that's the whole thing. But you only see the failures when you admit them, and when you admit them, you say, God, I need to find you in this disappointment, in this letdown, this discouragement. Secondly, when it, we need to recognize that adversity is a part of God's process, so embrace it. Don't run from it. A.W. Tozer once said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not into being hurt, particularly deeply. But I also understand that if you're going to gain, there's going to be pain. And those things can't be separated. We have a lot of theologies around the church today that would say just the opposite, saying that if you just have enough faith, you can make all problems go away. Boy, I wish that was true, but it's not. And it'll only be a matter of time before you'll find that out for yourself. But thirdly, I would say that you need to learn patience. James put it simply, taking this from the Amplified because the Amplified amplifies. He said, let endurance and steadfastness and patience have full play and do a thorough work so that you may be perfectly and fully developed with no defects lacking in nothing. Let patience have its full work, its full play in my life. I am a very patient man as long as I don't have to wait. You know, those of you who have been in the military know that how oftentimes in seasons of war our military will push young men from college into officer candidate school and 90 days later they're on the battlefield. What's the term you use for them? 90 day wonders? (laughs) Many of us come to Christ and we want to be those 90 day wonders. We want to be Navy SEALs without having to learn to hold our breath for long periods of time underwater. The reality is that not everybody is gifted in the same way to be able to do the same thing and therefore we have all sorts of different things that we do in this army that we're part of, a different role to play. But let me tell you that God will take you through adverse moments in your life so that you can learn what patience really means. And it kind of is a choice. You either learn patience or you end up going crazy and becoming one. But that's the choice that we face. And I think until we recognize that these are the options and they are the only options. They are the only options. It's only then that we'll begin to see the kind of progress where external symbols of success become less important to you. And the fact that you just, like Joseph, you know that God is with you. God is with you. My wife and I were on vacation one time down in Mexico, and uh, um, uh, the first morning we woke up, uh, a hurricane hit where we were at. And uh, my first thought was, wow, I've never been through a hurricane. This would be cool. (laughs) 
then you check the walls and everything else. But the hurricane comes, you know, it's, it's raining through it. It was just like a shower inside the building. But it was just, you know, blowing and winding. It's kind of cool because you're safe on the inside behind concrete walls. And then it passed and just calm and still. And I told my wife, hey, well, let's go down to the beach. Let's take a walk. And so we're walking down the beach and all these security guys going, come back, come back, come back. <laughs> it's just the eye of the storm. So we had to go back and wait for the second round to pass through, which was equally exciting. But you know, life feels like that a lot of times. You feel like you, you have these moments where it's just like you're on cruise control and everything's going smoothly and everything's coming together and you're just so thankful and so blessed and then the storm hits and everything is flying all over the place and it's created total chaos and all you can do is hunker down. It's those moments where we need to just wait upon Lord God, this isn't the end of my story. This is just part of it. And those who endure to the end, who endure those things, are the ones who come out on the other side, not only stronger, wiser, and more able to minister to others. So the next time I'm in a hurricane, I know how it works. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would help us to understand your ways and to admit to ourselves that oftentimes our way of thinking about life is far different than the way that you deal it out to us. But sometimes we say, well, you need to play with the cards that you were dealt. But sometimes, Lord, we don't even understand the rules of the game, much less play it. We need your wisdom, Lord. That when we're looking at things that are hard and painful and unfamiliar and, and we're unsure that, Lord, help us to take that first step of saying, God, I know that you're God. I know that you're in control. I know that you rule the universe. And I just need to know that you're with me right now. And I need you to give me wisdom to respond to these circumstances in a way that will be blessed. The Lord, we don't want success. We want blessing. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to make that distinction in our minds as well. God, us by your grace, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>